Extreme vocabulary is not your typical word of the day podcast. We don't just define words, we contextualize them in terms of their history, etymology, politics, and aesthetics. In other words, we look at the culture behind words. I'm here today with Abe. Hey, what's up? Ephraim. Hello, everyone. Good Friday to everyone. I mean, it's not Good Friday, but have, you know, it's, it is Friday. And uh, Josh. Just want to say in the 10 years I've known you guys, uh, you guys look younger today than you ever have before. I think we all look younger. I think we all look younger. I think we got enough sleep during 2020 somehow. I feel so much younger that I re-enlisted in the Army. And I'm Aaron, your humble co-host. Aaron looks like a pro wrestler today with his chops and his uh, uh, camouflage. Not chops, it's all the way. Yeah, what is it called when it's all the way? A beard? A beard. Oh, an a- isn't it called an afghan or something? Maybe, because uh, I shaved up here. It's because like my mustache gets like bristly and, and itchy. So sometimes I have to get rid of it, and I don't want to get rid of the rest. That's cool. It only took us 20 seconds to make a culturally insensitive comment this week. That's pretty good. It's a new record called, for I us. That, though. The afghan. I don't, no, that's a I don't know, dog. man. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like a like a, a a name we came up with, you know, in the two thousands, right? Like right after we went to war with uh, Afghanistan. It's just like, all right, how can we culturally appropriate everything they do and give it give that um, to things we do here in the U.S. Oh man, I don't know what it's <laughs> called. Well, we uh, munch on our freedom fries. What a what a way to start our show off. What's the what's the word? I was waiting for Aaron to ask the question. Ah, the word for today is maudlin. Maudlin. You say <laughs> maudlin, I say maudlin. All right, pronounce it for me, guys. Maudlin. 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 So it's like modeling, but you're just yes. conflating a portion or elighting a portion of the word. You're adding an apostrophe and getting rid of the G, yes. Modlin. Yeah, the word is modlin. Um, Aaron, you chose this word. Why'd you choose it? Well, it's a uh, word that was used by a certain professor that almost all of us had. had. Oh, okay. I thought it was because of the alcohol reference. What? No, I don't know this alcohol reference. Oh, okay. Well, when I looked into the word, I was like, oh, that's why Aaron chose it. There's an alcohol reference here. I had no idea, but hey, it, it makes sense. Okay. So, right, well, go ahead. All right. Yeah. Okay. I'll just get to it. So, maudlin, uh, it's a noun or an adjective, but I guess. To be able to talk about modeling, you have to understand that it's an eponym. So it's one of those words um, that begins as a person's name. It's a person's name and then it gets taken into the culture and like transformed into just some regular noun. So oh, she's such a mod. Yeah, so it's something like, like Kafka-esque, you know? It's like you take Kafka, Franz Kafka's name and then you make it into an adjective that describes something. So we have the same situation here. Maudlin is really just the name Mary Magdalene. And uh, I guess it's based on the last name, right? Because Magdalene is 
the 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 one that sounds like maudlin and also it's a i guess it's a like middle english pronunciation of the last name magdalene so how would you maybe mispronounce magdalene in middle english magdalene go ahead i tried to do like a guttural g i think it's it's called like magdalene <laughs> magdalene I don't know. Is that, is that, is that fun? To hear me do that? <laughs> so fun. Yeah, I don't know how, how like middle English speakers would have pronounced Magdalene because I, it's like uh, the Latin and the Italian, you would say something like Magdalena, right? Something mm. like that. And then the middle English speaker would take that and pronounce what? Modlin? Something like that. Let's call our, yeah, our time traveler. Aaron? I'm the time traveler? Yeah, how would you say that? I, I, I don't know. You're I'm in Middle England. Person. You're looking at a series of letters. Oh, okay. Oh, you confused me for a second. I'm, I'm doing the language thing. Okay, um, Magdalene or Magdalene, which one? Magdalene, I guess. Magdalene? Magdalene. Magdalene. Yeah, and so if you keep just kind of mispronouncing it, you eventually get to Magdalene. And that's how we get the word. So that's the etymology of the word. It's just, you know, Mary Magdalene's name, and then you just mispronounce it in Middle English. (laughs) Cool. All right, so who was Mary Magdalene? Um, she was Jesus's wife. Wait a minute, what does this word mean? <laughs> yeah, we, we got to that very quickly, didn't we? <laughs> Jesus's wife, uh-huh. Da Vinci Code stuff. Wife, wife or lover or both, yeah. She, she was in the painting with him next to him in The Last Supper. Yeah, that, that is what that book claims. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going yeah. all by a novel, by a Dan Brown novel. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, there is, there is a bit of confusion over who she was. Um, but isn't it more that, like, Jesus is gay and she's, like, his counterpart or something like that? Oh, so weird. now we're talking about Jesus Christ Superstar? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Um, yeah, so there was, there is some confusion over like who exactly Mary Magdalene was because there's so many Marys in the Gospels that are like hanging around Jesus. Um, there's one Mary, or at least this one woman who was a sex worker and who became a disciple of Jesus. And then there's this, um, other Mary or maybe just another woman who was not even named Mary, who um, weeps at his feet during the Last Supper. And, and she might be the same one who, like, breaks a bottle of perfume over him. Mm-hmm. Um, or I should say pours a bottle of perfume, not <laughs> breaks a bottle over his head. <laughs> she pours a bottle of perfume over him. Um, and then the, uh, there's his, the one who like witnesses his crucifixion and like weeps 
at his tomb and all of that. So it's just like, there's a bit of confusion between like all these different Marys and the different women who appear in the stories. And so we don't really know too much, I guess, about Mary Magdalene, except that she was a disciple of Christ. But also that she was like a prostitute. Is that right? Well, that's what I'm saying, that we're not entirely sure. She could have been, yeah. There's also an idea that she she might have been a rich woman, and therefore she was funding Jesus' ministry. Oh. Um, That and a few other people could have been funding the ministry of Jesus um, and giving them money to buy food and things like that, etc., so, the, but what I think what's important for the word, though, is the idea that, that she wept at Jesus' crucifixion. She probably wept over her sins as a penitent, and she wept at his tomb. And so what the word maudlin means is someone who is penitent or somebody who is... Uh, somebody who weeps a lot and that's what maudlin means it's just you know a person who does a lot of weeping or who's uh penitent um and therefore is crying over their sins um somebody who is like mary magdalene okay that's the idea there i don't know where this connotation comes it could just be entirely made up for me and where i how I feel about how the word sounds, but I feel like this kind of a negative connotation, like it's a little bit dour. Like if you're, if uh, somebody's going to say, Hey, let's go to Abe's house. And I was like, well, he's a bit maudlin. People wouldn't be like, Oh, that's sick, dude. I can't wait to like make him cry. And uh, I can't wait to see how penitent he is about things. They'd be like, Oh, okay. Let's uh, steer clear so that we don't get the modeling on us too. Yeah. Some people would say, does he have a YouTube account? I mean, not YouTube, I'm sorry, Instagram account? Because he said he was modeling. Oh. I always associated it with like, 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 yeah, weeping and penitent, but not, like there's a calmness, right? This, to me, it always co- connoted some kind of like calm. It's not like a hysteric. At least that's the way I always associated it. Like it's like a, it's a more calm and tempered uh, penitence. Hmm. But I don't know if that's like it's not hysteric. It's not like, you know, there's not, yeah. There's no sob heaving sobs. Yeah, or like yeah, but I, I mean, this is just the association I've always made with the word. It's not necessarily the actual. I always thought of it as. Uh, Kind of uh, yeah, being weepy and you know, to the point of excess, and uh, and the, the the effect it had on everybody else was that it was just kind of like, oh my god, here we go again. I don't know how to. Do you feel like it's a? Like that. It's, do you feel like it's a little performative, Aaron? Yeah, yeah, I do. Or at least that's what I I understood before. So I think you're pointing out like at least two different ways of thinking about modeling and. Um, 
So what I'm talking about is the earlier one, especially because I'm talking about like the etymology of the terms. So I have to talk about like all earlier ideas or associations and definitions of the word. So like in Catholicism, she, uh, Mary Magdalene is a symbol of penance. So in that sense, you know, like it has a very positive connotation, right? Because you're supposed to be penitent. Um, you're supposed to be sorrowful over sin, et cetera. And I, and I think that the definition you're all, that you all are bringing up um, seems like the, the more recent kind of thinking over, over Maudlin. Um, and by recent, I don't mean something like in the last 200 years. You know, it could have been in the last, you know, 500, 600 years or something like that, where like the word does acquire a more um, negative connotation and it comes to mean something like um, shallow sentimentality, which is what you're all talking about, right? And especially since you're talking about like the performative aspect of it, right? So, so now we do think of it as like shallow sentimentality, but again, there's like this earlier etymology of it where you where it does have a kind of positive association um and by the way mary magdalene was frequently represented in paintings or in art and other places like that she was frequently depicted as a weeping woman una llorona <laughs> so not la llorona, una not llorona. La llorona. <laughs> i mean the one thing about this word is that I feel like I've, I've heard it before, but I don't recall any like cultural reference to it other than that. Like I don't, or, you know, like I've, I've, I've not heard it used like in popular culture really at all. Like I can't even remember like a source for it in popular culture, which usually the words we, we, we talk about, there's some kind of link that I can like say, Oh, it's in a movie or uh, something. And this one's not like, I, I can't re recall anything. Mm -hmm. Josh and Aaron, do you guys have any cultural associations with that word? No. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I must have read it before. And uh, what a, I have a question. Is it related to the name Maud? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I should probably look that one up. Um, but Maud I, Flanders. I, oh, right. I mean, yeah, a lot of the names do end up getting um, shortened. So it would make sense to me that Maud is like a short for Maudlin, which is, again, a kind of like variant or mispronunciation of Magdalene, <laughs> which is what always happens in languages anyway. <laughs> you know, when, when words cross over, they just get like appropriated and mispronounced. Um, and the mispronunciation becomes the new pronunciation of the word, you know? Mm -hmm. I think, isn't mod a short though? Mod isn't an actual name, right? It's like a short for Margaret or something like that. <clears throat> Yeah, but I think that even Margaret is like a, a variation of Magdalene. Yeah. No, Margaret has a short, uh, shortened version, Peggy. For sure, for sure. And even sh more shortened version. <laughs> but a lot of these names have multiple like short versions. Yeah. Well, the example that I can give you guys is um, uh, here. I'll type it into chat. 
Topenhauer Hill. Do you guys know this one? Is that like faulty towers? No, 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 no. <laughs> this, is, this is like a, an example that like really stuck with me from uh, taking a linguistics class. Is that um, the word topen means hill, and then hour means hill, and then hill means hill. So guess what's there? There's a hill there. Yeah. So Topenhauer Hill turns out it's it's the name of this one hill that just like the name of that place got like appropriated into three different languages. And so that's kind of like what I think about languages. It's just like we I'm sorry, I thought it was a British TV show for some reason. Uh Topenhauer so, Hill. Oh, you mean like Benny Hill or something? <laughs> No, not Benny Hill, but yeah, I I, I get it. Benny Hill. Benny Hill was a dirty old man. It's like, can't we have one episode of this podcast without mentioning Benny Hill? I feel like we mentioned him every other. The one other definition that I'll mention, by the way, and this is an adjective, um, where modeling is a stage of drunkenness where the person is crying or sentimental. Yeah, that, that, I remember that, something about that. Ooh, who's most likely to become maudlin here, you think? I have my moments. I think Abe has a good maudlin streak in him a little bit. <laughs> he, but it's not too sad, but it's a, more profound. It's extra. It's very warm. <laughs> I don't know what you guys. Should I be here for this conversation? <laughs> no, sit there while we talk about you behind your back. The front of back. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Metaphorically speaking. Well, is you there, guys. Are, is there such a thing as a profound modeling? Is that <laughs> what we're asking? <laughs> if there is, it's. It's. I've seen you display it the more more than uh, the, any uh, any of the rest of us, but <laughs> not. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Are you guys talking about like an existential kind of crying or something like that? That's what you're saying about me. <laughs> this is embarrassing. You don't no, do I, that. You only, you only do that in private. Oh, I'm I'm talking about the word quite literally. Like I've seen you three drunk, and the one who's who's ever been closest to being modern would be maybe maybe you Abraham but I wouldn't say any any of you three are maudlin drinkers or maudlin drunks or anything I feel a little maudlin when I see everybody on our uh, quiz nights maybe oh that oh, is it's uh, <laughs> a tear our I, quiz I, nights dear listener are, are uh, we managed to get together a larger group of our cohort together many of whom I haven't seen in very long, longer than even uh, the coronavirus. Yeah, I hadn't seen Greta in a long time. And even some folks that are not quite part of the, the main cohort, you know, they're by extension and spokes in the wheel. Well, they were, oh, right, they weren't a part of our cohort. They were a part of our, uh, co uh, the writing center. The writing center. The cohort. Yeah. Yeah. That was another cohort. So it was like two cohorts co-mingling. Yeah. Two cohorts cohorting. For the audience, we are talking about Cal State Los Angeles. Beep, 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 beep. I'm beeping that out. <laughs> no, we should, we should, 
we should hashtag that. Yeah, we should know. like we should make more of that actually. No, that's true. Are you talking about California State University of Los Angeles? <laughs> the 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 the, the Di- formerly the Diablos. I say of uh, because a lot of students write that instead of they think it's like uh, University of California, you know. And I'm not UCLA here, guys. It's Cal State University, comma Los Angeles. You mean nowadays they write that they nowadays. <laughs> I figured people would confuse it for ELAC or something. No, surprisingly, we don't get confused with ELAC too often. I don't know why. We're very close to each other. Yeah. We're changing our name to California State, wait, California State University of Los Angeles on Tongva land, I think. Really? No, but that'd be cool, right? That would be cool. So, so do you all feel maudlin about uh, Cal State LA, by the way? You guys have that kind of sentiment, sentiment toward it? I miss, being, I miss being on campus because I'm not able to teach there. It's weird. I'm not, I haven't done that, that before for the past you know, seven years. I, I, feel, yeah, I feel like Andy Bernard in like the, one of the last episodes of The Office when he's like, you don't know what the good old days are while you're in them, right? I appreciated the good old days when we were in them for a bit. I, I did, did too, but I didn't really realize that those were the good old days. Well, the good old days can color all of our days. Uh, I may have been conscious that they were the good days. I think I might have been too, honestly, because there was enough time between college and uh, grad school that I was like, wow, the world is like so freaking dumb. School is so fun. And uh, there's a lot less, um, I don't know. I don't know whatever it was, you know, a lot less angst than there was probably during re- uh, regular college. But I think this podcast was consummated in in part because of that feeling, right? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, just trying to grab onto the past, you know, just... Nostalgic swell out. Yeah. Except we go more than an hour usually. So, can I... Let me bring something up. I I feel like... uh, like Efren just used the word consummated, which also has like these sexual connotations. <laughs> mm-hmm. Consummated the marriage. Yeah, Nothing is by like, chance. <laughs> and they like, shared a bowl of consomme. Yeah, it's just like the one thing I remember, like one thing that I know is like, there was uh, like, yeah, we're all a bunch of friends, but I also felt like there was a kind of, and I'm sorry to say this, but it, I always felt like there was a kind of, sexual tension or whatever going on there. <laughs> oh. You know what? Okay, here's what I thought. But like, I, maybe a few people admit it, but like nobody ever acted on it, right? Like nobody ever did anything about it. At least I think. Speak I for yourself. Well, I never have. I never acted on <laughs> I it. I never have either. So there you go. But all I'm saying is, Same. I think there's, I'm not a saying no. there's a connection between like thinking sentimentally about something and like all that sexual tension because Maudlin has that in it, like the word itself. It's like, uh, 
again, there's this idea that like Mary Magdalene might have been a sex worker. And, and there's like at least one painting where she's represented as, you know, weeping. Like she has like a handkerchief and she's like cleaning her tears. But at the same time, she's like wearing like this low cut dress. <laughs> so there's some like cleavage in the painting itself. Um, the painting is called The Magdalene Weeping, and it's from, like, around the 1500s. So, I don't know. There's this kind of really weird connection between sentimentality or weeping Ooh, yeah. and this kind of sexuality that's kind of written into the word maudlin. Maudlin weeping comes after the sex. First of all, cleavage may have different connotations. I don't know. Or like breasts can have a different energy in different cultures. Um, that picture is pretty good that I'm looking at right now. But there's other pictures where it's like, I think I talked about this before. Mary's boobs are actually shooting milk into like a saint's head or something like that. And I don't know. That's probably related. I think it's uh, St. Francis, who uh, his miracle was that Mary, Mary appeared to him and lactated on him. <laughs> yeah, I think those are just the websites you're going to, dude. No, <laughs> it's a, I think those are just the <laughs> It's real. But also just think about um, the body of Christ being represented. He's usually pretty muscular, you know, or like you can – he is a, a practice in um, – as a figure, he's a practice in kind of like svelte musculature, you know? And so to kind of be in a place where or sexuality is being uh, policed and to have all of your emotions being directed at this like naked man at the same time, you know, it kind of... Oh, yeah. He has a loincloth. He's also... Uh, juicing out of his side right there yeah you know spear will do that yeah he's wearing a loincloth but he's like breaking the uh you know the rule because if anybody showed up to church in a loincloth they'd be like get the heck out of here that's a good experiment Hmm. it's like medieval pornography or something yeah they had to get their rocks off somehow (laughs) well I, i meant to kind of um I meant it a little bit metaphorical, not quite so. No, if you can, yeah, I think if you charge, maybe like, uh, you know, in with dictatorships, like your sentimentality is charged with fear, you know? Mm-hmm. You have to show so much uh, reverence for the dictator or you'll die, but it still gets like mixed into the passion of what you feel. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes sexuality and sentimentality can also be uh, charged together in a certain way where it enhances the experience or something. Well, yeah, I think certain parts of the brain are like connected, right? That are associated with like, you know, affect and fear and uh, sentiment, sentimentality and desire, right? I think they're connected in some way. Uh, let's go to the living brain. Living brain. 
Oh. Is there supposed to be a graphic there? <laughs> yeah, no. It would be cool if we could call a brain. Yeah, it would be. I, I he just had that wiry strength, <clears throat> kind of like Bruce Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what you're talking about, Efren, is this idea that okay, um, you know, like certain parts of our our emotional capacities are tied to maybe like erotic capacities. I guess you're saying something like that. And I suppose that's true because, um, again, if you're thinking about Maudlin as, um, you know, the, the, the drunk cry, right? The person who's drunk crying. Um, the person who's drunk crying has, like, really affected their, like, central nervous system with alcohol, right? So they're, like, <laughs> their oh. central nervous system is just, like, doused with alcohol, right? With this, like, chemical, and so now they're like more susceptible to certain things like, I don't know, uh, sexual arousal or whatever, or um, sentimentality or effusive crying or a maudlin stage, you know? Um, so I, I feel like what you're saying is true and like the experience of alcohol can be used as evidence for that. Yeah, I'm also thinking here of the images of um, teenage girls crying at Beatles concerts, just uncontrollably weeping, crying. And of course, you, you know, that's got to be mixed up with desire, right? I mean. Oh, and the Beatles were mods, right? M-O-D. M-O-D mods, right? Nah, that's probably unrelated. In mod we trust. No, I didn't mean, I, I really wanted to derail the conversation just to uh, make that pun. So you're welcome. <laughs> but you did it anyway. That's a good one. Can't we have we one podcast where we don't mention the Beatles? <laughs> Only if we, if we don't stop mentioning Benny Hill. You know what's interesting about the Beatles is like, if you see um, footage of Bob Dylan in 1962, he was kind of pulling similar reactions. Was like that before he, he was doing his uh, act? He's saying a little more like this. Anyways, he was like a, there was something in the air at that time where like teenagers were just ready to break into tears for some reason. It was the 60s, man. Can't explain it otherwise. The early 60s. Hmm. So I feel like we've been talking about modeling as, uh, or, or actually this is a question you brought up earlier, Josh. You said like modeling has this negative connotation and I wonder why do we perceive weeping as a weakness or as a negative thing? I think it's because we make people uncomfortable. It makes people uncomfortable. We do too, but... You mean crying makes other people uncomfortable? I think it does for the most part. Like, some people don't know what to do if somebody's crying. Unless they know them really well, and maybe they'll try and console them. But even then, it takes a lot of energy from you to try to console somebody who's crying. I agree. It's, it becomes like a babysitting endeavor. But then, I think, 
that's unfortunate. I mean, I think it's partially because we're like not emotionally adapted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the U.S., especially. Yeah, no. I yeah, I hear that during like Middle Ages, people were a lot more emotional. Like men would just start weeping for in the street, but everybody was also half drunk. But um, the <laughs> what what that makes me think. Well, here's the thing: like you don't want to be with somebody who's maudlin and will break into weeping because that will require too much energy for you to like meet them at that emotional level. But then you also don't want to be known. Uh, you don't also want to hang out with somebody who's too stoic because then they'll never like arouse your emotions or something. So maybe we're always Boring. just, yeah, we're looking for people who will excite us, but not too much in, <laughs> in any direction. I don't know. Hmm. Real men cry. Lebowski. Is that the line? Real men cry. You don't remember when he's, uh, he's looking at the fire. At the at the the fireplace. Oh, oh right, right, yeah. The, oh, that was a good, big, big time fake cry, right? Yeah. Do you guys remember Obama crying? <laughs> yeah, once or twice, or maybe a few times. Why? I don't he cried, actually. He cried, he cried quite a few times, actually. When Aretha Franklin was singing Natural Woman at the Kennedy Center, what else though? Um, I think his, his grandmother passed away while he was campaigning the first time. Mm. And during one of his speeches, he broke out crying um, as he was talking about her. And then he, he, the, the other time that he cried was... Um, after the Sandy Hook school shooting. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. I was trying to remember which one it was, the Sandy Hook, yeah. But what I remember is that um, there were like people who were criticizing him for crying. <laughs> of course, it was like conservatives or Republicans. Anyway, I, was, I think I was just like listening to K-Rock in the morning and some dude like called up and he was like, why is Obama crying? And Reagan would have kicked his butt and I don't know what. <laughs> Reagan would have drooled his oatmeal is what he would have done. Yeah. And I feel like that's like the general like U.S. reaction to like just like weeping in general, especially men, you know, like weeping men or crying men. It's the cowboy aesthetic, well, not the aesthetic, but the, you know, cowboy culture, you know, the man's man, the West, you know, that kind of thing. The rugged individual doesn't need anybody, doesn't cry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eats yeah. chili from a can. <laughs> yeah. But there's some masculine times to cry. You can cry during some masculine or manly events. Go ahead, uh, Efren. Yeah, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say that I think in Parks and Rec, what does Ron Swanson say? You're only allowed to cry during like funerals and... Something Sport, else. Sports games or something like something. that. Sports yeah, I mean, that's a controversy actually in uh, sports, right? Is It's like w- when players are like allowed to cry or like sometimes players cry if they lose a game and then they're criticized in the media for crying. And um, It seems yeah, like you I'm, can cry when you win the championship though, right? That's when it's okay. Oh. And you're yeah. the best player on the team. You need those two things going. And then it's like a manly cry. 
Yeah. Yeah, if you cry when you lose, uh, you're, you're a wuss. You can only cry over the American flag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of crying, I did um, go through a very painful event recently, or not recently, but about two and a half years ago, where I broke my leg. Now, I will cry at like any movie that wants me to, uh, mm -hmm. but when I broke my leg, I realized as much pain as I was in, I couldn't cry about it. I think even if I wanted to, like that whatever dam that used to break in my mind when I'd be really hurt as a child, it just wouldn't break anymore. You know what I mean? I don't know what that is, though. Well, as a kid, aren't you kind of crying more for the like, because you want help, like you want to like express your pain outwardly? I mean, I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't know. That one. I don't know. I, I also felt like a like a little dam in my brain broke, and I just it was like a sense of giving up or some something like that. Yeah, because I mean, I I've had kidney stones, right, which are one of the worst you know pains you can have, and I didn't cry, but like but like it's not because. It just wasn't part of the, like, I didn't feel like I should cry, but I cry, I cry at like movies and especially that, you know, that movie with the dog and Owen Wilson, what's it called? Marley and me. Oh yeah. That geez, that, that movie, <laughs> that like really kind of. That movie was hilarious. I saw that movie in theaters, and uh, as I was walking out, like everybody was just sitting in their seat, devastated, hands in their head in their hands. <sighs> that and Coco. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do about Coco. There's no. You can go in saying I'm not going. You can try not to cry in Coco. And no. Josh, what, what's that one? Um, was it a Studio Ghibli movie? The one about um, the or the Japanese orphans of World War Two? Uh, okay, that's the first movie I found out I can cry at a movie, and that was Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, that one. And uh, we watched it in Japanese class during a rainy day or something like that. And I don't know if you know, but Japanese school is just filled with bullies. It's just a bunch of punks who are upset to be there on a Saturday morning, you know? And so I'm just sitting there like my jaw just starts clenching up and hurting so bad because uh, of what happens in the movie. And I'm just like, I can't, can't cry, but you just feel your face like uh, extreme pressure in the face. I don't know what that is. The dam giving way. Yeah. Yeah. The weld up emotion. Yeah. I I can't watch that movie again exactly because of, <laughs> because I know that I just I'll just like break out. And that right. one's that one's not sweet either. It's like with Coco, there's like a sweetness because it's like you're losing something but getting something at the same time. I think with Marley and me, even it's like well you had you know the good times or something like that. Grave of the Fireflies is just like 
leaves you flat. I'll have to watch this now. I don't think I've ever seen it. Me either. The Elephant Man makes me cry. That's really sad. The David Lynch one, that that makes me cry almost all the time. Yeah. You like cry at that the moment you goes, I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. That I cry at a you. couple of moments, but that's one of them, yeah. It's pretty profound. We've built a pretty good uh, movie recommendation list for, <laughs> for crying. Yeah. <laughs> Got enough water in your head? <laughs> Check out this movie list. But yeah, I think Coco is the last movie, right, that everybody agrees. Like, this is a tearjerker. Like, anecdote about Coco, just really quick. I've told this to you all before, I'm sure. But like, you know that, that the Chinese censors, uh, they, they have a, a censor program for any movie that's to be shown in China. And um, one of the easiest ways for a movie to get banned and censored is by having any sort of reference to religion or the afterlife. But after having viewed the movie, all the like whatever panel was just in tears and they just accepted. They said, yeah, this movie, like this one, can, this, you can, everyone can view this one. <laughs> oh, and I think, funny. you know, it's part because like this, the reverence, the ancestral reverence of the movie is, I think, touched a lot of, a lot of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it works as a solid metaphor for what life and death is as much as it portrays like a specific, uh, belief set or something, I guess. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah, these hardened censors, you know, these were just like crying and they just said like, <laughs> yeah, like let it, let it go. All right. You're not drinking whiskey, are you? Tea. Iced tea. Oh, iced tea, okay, I thought really, you said tea. It really is iced tea. Yeah, I'm not like making a joke. Yeah. And here you are talking about your kidney stones and you're drinking iced tea again. Yeah, it's it's like it's this type of tea is not the kind that give you stones. Wait, there's a kind of tea that gives you kidney stones. What is it? In each episode of Extreme Vocabulary, we share a piece of literature that has today's word. Efren, what is today's word? Today's word is maudlin, and today's uh, text is a poem. And it's, it's a poem that has the word in the title, but I think the whole poem references sort of maudlin, what it is, and uh, kind of read discusses some of the things that we've, we've talked about, which is kind of perfect. It kind of fits right in uh, to our discussion or parts of our discussion. So this is, uh, this poem is Maudlin or the Magdalene's Tears by Linda Gregerson, who's a Renaissance scholar uh, and, a, and, a, and a lyrical poet. And so let me, uh, let me read it for you all. If faith is a tree that sorrow grows and women repentant or not, are swamps. A man who comes for solace here will be up to his knees and slow getting out. A name can turn on anyone. 
But say that a woman washes the dust from a stranger's feet and sits quite dry-eyed in front of her mirror at night. The candle flame moves with her breath, as does the hand of the painter, who sees in the flame his chance for virtuosity. She lets him leave her shoulder bare. Bedlam's distilled from a Mary too, St. Mary's of Bethlehem, shelter for all the afflicted and weak of mind. The donors conceived of as magi, no doubt. The mad and the newborn serve equally well for show. A whore with a heart, the rich with a conscience, the keepers of language and hospitals badly embarrassed at times by their charge. The mirror refuses the candle, you see, and, tear, and tears on another's behalf are not the mirrors he's pleased to regard. Who loves his ironies, buxom and grave, must hate the foolish water of her eyes. All right. There's something going on in this poem, but I don't quite know what. Well, I think this poem might resist penetration for some reason. Uh, interestingly, the mirror reveal is a gender, uh, reveals, or it is revealed that the mirror is a male at the end of the poem. Um, so there's a few things I, I, I do understand about the poem. Um, number one, the phrase, a name can turn on anyone. And it's because that's pretty much what we've been talking about. It's the idea that like this woman's name, Mary Magdalene, right? Her name gets turned into maudlin, into a kind of, it, it, it acquires this like negative connotation, right? Um, so the idea that the name, her own name gets turned on, on itself. Um, and then, like, what comes after that is this idea that um, she might not, that she might not be as maudlin as, as her name has come to mean, but that she, this idea that she kind of just sits, like, quietly in front of the mirror, right? Dry-eyed. But at the same time, she's, like, being painted. And the painter is the one who then, like, makes turns Mary Magdalene into the idea of maudlin. And that's what I think the poem is about. It's about how like the name gets turned in on itself. Or as, it, as the poem says here, a name can turn on anyone. Or in this case, the name gets turned on Mary Magdalene by the painter who is painting her and therefore representing her as a maudlin that's what I get from the poem. Maybe the painter is the mirror too. Okay. They're both male at least. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, now we see, okay, I like that. That helped me a lot actually. Me too. Yeah, that helped me a lot. She lets him leave her shoulder bare. So it could be that 
uh, he paints her shoulder bare and she just lets it be, be that way. Um, and we have here the hand of the painter who sees in the flame his chance for virtuosity. I think the flame there is gonna represent Mary. So he's, the painter's kind of taking advantage of the kind of flicker of her, her soul a little bit, as you see this candle moves with her breath. And uh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know why the mirror refuses the candle at the end of the poem though. Mm -hmm. There's also a, some of the sexuality that we've been talking about because, um, so you mentioned uh, the candle flame moves with her breath, as does the hand of the painter, who sees in the flame his chance for virtuosity. So there's the idea of virtuousness, right? Which is also linked to like sexual purity. But then the next line is the idea that the painter wants her to leave her shoulder bare and she's okay with it or she let, gives him permission to do that. So that he's kind of depicting her uh, a bit eroticized. And then there's the word buxom toward the end, who loves his ironies buxom, buxom. And so I feel like there's quite a few words in this poem that refer back to the idea of the sexuality of Mary Magdalene, who again might have been a sex worker, or at least for a long time has been thought of as being a sex worker in the gospels, who then becomes a uh, a disciple oh there's a little uh, moment from the bible too in case anybody doesn't read the bible uh, but say that a woman washes the dust from a stranger's feet one of the stories that gets associated with mary magdalene is that she washed jesus's feet with her hair i think and some perfume um and but the washing of the feet is also like a, a practice, I think, in those times, like a show of affection. And I think Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And they're like, what are you doing? You're, you're a king, you know? And he's like, no, but I like you guys, so I want to wash your feet now. So, um, yeah, so say that she wasn't, she goes from, not weeping early on in the poem she's sitting there dry-eyed in front of her mirror and then at the end it seems like he says that uh the mirror refuses the candle and tears on another's behalf are not the mirror mirrors he's pleased to regard i don't understand that sentence who loves his ironies buxom and grave must hate the foolish water of her eyes so is she suddenly crying at the end or Maybe I need to understand grammar better. And tears on, or tears on, another's behalf are not the mirrors he's pleased to regard. Tears on. Mm -hmm. yeah. The other thing that kind of makes sense to me is that the painter is actually he's painting this in some kind of hospital or something like that. Like he's being paid to do that and to represent Mary Magdalene there as weeping. 
and the idea that there's like donors who have paid for the buildings to be made at this hospital and who have paid for this painter to come in and like do this work or something like that. Uh, so there seems to be like a criticism of um, the donors, right? The donors conceived as magi, right? Who are supposed to be like these um, rich dudes or whatever who come to to baby Jesus and give him presents and all that. But so like they, the poet seems to be criticizing like that whole situation, like the idea that there's like these rich people who are donating these hospital buildings and then paying for the painting. And then this like painter who wants to represent Mary Magdalene as this like weeping woman or whatever. And, but who also wants to criticize her maudlin behavior. I feel like that's what the poem is about, which is kind of like what I've been talking about this whole time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, that sounds really like- Or I'm just reading my, I'm just reading my own research into the mm -hmm. poem and making it about the things that I, that I know. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the reasons why I was like, oh, like, well, why I wanted to read this one um, and why I mentioned that Linda Gregerson's like a Renaissance scholar. So, mm -hmm. you know, she's probably really attuned to a lot of these references and the way, and, and even the way the word and uh, Mary Magdalene has, have, has shifted. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. This is good, good stuff. In case anyone wants, like is wondering uh, this poem modeling or the Magdalene's tears comes from the volume fire in the conservatory from 1982 by Linda Gregerson. And it's a great poem, a beautiful poem, one of the best. That's all I want. You it's won't like, read the poem. You won't do it. It's more like, it's an impression of Alec Baldwin's impression, which is cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had, I had this one idea and this, uh, the title of the, of the poetry collection reminded me of it. It's like Fire in the Conservatory. I had this one idea the other day, like, wouldn't it be cool if we just like burned all this art, that this historical art, just like get rid of it, just like burn it all. And that way we're all forced to begin again, not thinking about influence or anything. <laughs> oh, I kind of, I kind of like that. Like, uh, I think we're like very high on uh, capacity in terms of how many songs we can have in our brain, you know? And before we could write music or before we could record music, you would, you would really just have to like probably sing yourself a little song, you know? Yeah. I do like that idea. One of the things I thought was cool that was that Polaroids were going away. Somebody picked up that technology and decided to uh, put it out for hipsters, but there was a second where it's like, we're going to not make Polaroid film anymore. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that that body is going to be set forever, that body of uh, media. Yeah, the Polaroid. Is a Polaroid, is it still, it made a comeback, right? And is it still present or is it now? 
Like, I think it's going to be present. Yeah, it's still present. Oh, did it dip again? I don't know. I, I think it did. Well, it's funny because the Polaroid became, it was a Polaroid, but mostly people just reposted it on Instagram anyway. Yeah, and that's going to last forever. But the Polaroids themselves are kind of temporary. They're not, there's something about the way that they get processed in the, in the film that it fades over time. Yeah. Yeah, I have some old Polaroids, and they just kind of like, they get, it's not even fading. They kind of like almost blur or something. They just lose their focus, I feel. I don't know. They become red. Did we exhaust this poem then? <laughs> oh, I think so. Or did I exhaust it? I think you did an awesome uh, job right now. I think you basically don't have to go to school anymore, Abraham. Um, you spoke, uh, I just like, I just put it on mute and I was like, nah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. But I like the idea of like burning conservatories and museums and all that. Let's just burn all that old art already. I'm tired of talking about Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> we could probably create something new. I don't know. That's a yeah. really radical idea. Though. I like None Ninja Turtles though. None of the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> hey, I like the idea in theory, but uh, having been in Italy and like experienced the aura, which was such a relief from what life is these days, the possibility of us not really replacing it, but just substituting it with uh, our current technologies and behavior is, that's too sad for me. Just like a little model. Yeah, like we, we, if we burn down the conservatories, all we'll have is Instagram. Maybe I'll like Instagram more. Respect. You're not subscribing to the right channels if you don't like Instagram. <laughs> okay. You're probably right. I like, yeah, I liked Instagram at the beginning, but not anymore. Yeah, go to the naked Instagram. Oh, that's the uh, where it's like they don't use any filters, right? It's just like uh, unmastered, unmixed. Never mind. I mean, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what I know. <laughs> All right, you beautiful people. Let's uh, move on to our final section after this. Welcome back, everybody, one and all. Aaron and I are co-hosting today's episode. Um, we're like we're like a tag team, kind of like the uh, the rocket, the rockets. Wait, what were they called? Well, that's a basketball team. Oh yeah, well, well, what was the team with uh, Marty Janetti and Shawn Michaels? Oh, Rockers. The Rockers, yeah. Rockers. I think they used to be called the Midnight Rockers, and then on TV they're like, nope, just the Rockers because trademark infringement or something. What's your favorite? Okay, so anyways, I'm introducing this brand new segment. What is your favorite tag team? Followed by uh, our first email from a poet, which we'll read. Um, but before we read this email from a poet, what is your favorite tag team? 
I think Demolition is probably my favorite. I That's knew that would happen. They were kind of knockoffs of um, Road Warriors. Road Warriors. Road Warriors. Or uh, Legion of Doom. But I did like how they were like a, a weirder group. There was like three of them. And so like one of them you could switch out. And then they had Mr. Fuji, I think, was their manager. So there was – they were kind of a more – uh, yeah, there's kind of an element of surprise to whatever was going on with them. I got one you guys will never guess. Not really my favorite team, but I, I just like this team. I think they're pretty awesome. The Bushwhackers? They're called the, he the Heavenly Bodies. Oh, yeah. Dr. Tom Pritchard and Gigolo Jimmy Del Rey. <laughs> That's cool. And then, of course, the gigolo, would, the gigolo would do, like, a gigolo dance. Like, he would kind of do this, you know, like, gyrate. And he did, got so much heat. It was, it was wonderful. Cool. Abe, I'm sorry, but it's your turn. You have to put this, put, seal this into cement right now. I think I was going to say the Bushwhackers, but I didn't remember their name. Was there also a tag team called the Headbangers or no? Yeah. That would have been nineties. That would have been a good one. You know what my favorite is? The nasty boys. Good. Remember the good. nasty boys? Yeah, I think I remember them. They they live their gimmick. And they, <laughs> their super move was putting the, your face in the, with the other one's armpit. I think. Pit, the pit I don't stop. know if that was their super move, but it was. <laughs> it was a signature move. That'd be funny, though, if, like, after you do that, you just pin them. <laughs> All right, anyways. Joshua? I just, I just have to quickly oh. mention the British Bulldogs, just as a, as a, as a honorable mention. British Bulldogs. Those two were, uh, those two were uh, problem starters. They were known for that. I got, I got one last one. Andre the Giant and Haku. You can't beat that team. Nobody yeah. could. <laughs> but what if the nasty, what if the nasty boys, like because it doesn't depend on how strong you are, like uh, how susceptible you are to that sm to that smell, right? So maybe they were the only ones who could beat. Oh, well, and Andre used to apparently smell a lot. Like his gear, he wouldn't wash it too often. Oh, like yeah. he would like he would he would like get his like strap and then like use it to choke you and then like all his giant juice would run down you. Cool. All right, anyways, <laughs> um, speaking of uh, combat, it's not really combat, but when you're emailing uh, with a poet, you might uh, worry about what you say next um, for fear of looking a fool. And uh, Joshua Clover, who, um, whose poem about big deal. the Paris Commune we read, wrote to me and he was like, hey, are you the Josh Adachi from Extreme Vocabulary? And then I was like, yeah. And then um, he said, hi, I was just lolling or LOLing at how terrible that poem was functionally. And I thought I could at least tell the podcast team that the Theory of Speculation book that was about thesis really developed the math that would become the main of the basis of modern finance 
hedging and options pricing, that stuff, that's the capital that the book invents, finance capital. As a side note, as your paired word was commune, an opinion I arrived at after reading about the Paris commune was that their decision to let the Bank of France continue to function was, while understandable, something, something paying soldiers, a terrible mistake. Hence the third thing, which the poem returns to in the very last line. While I did not enjoy my own failings, I enjoyed the pod greatly. Uh, Joshua, not a Dr. Clover. I uh, mistakenly called him Dr. Clover in my response to him because I didn't have what? to get up where I was. It happens. He wanted me to know. Hey, we should we should get we should get uh, no non Doctor Joshua Clover on the podcast someday. Well, he's he's kind of um, here in spirit right now. Um, his, yeah, yes, his words are here. But his words are here with us, and maybe he's he should his, be here. Like maybe his ears, us. maybe his ears are here. I did write him back, and I said uh, we obviously didn't think the poem was terrible, but I didn't know what he meant. Actually, I I want to know what you guys think that he means by this because he does answer it, but I was wondering. Yeah, I was just LOLing at how terrible that poem was functionally. What do you uh what what do you think that means? Um functions I, terribly. I thought he meant maybe just that um I thought he he was thinking that the poem was kind of difficult to understand maybe. Mm. That's what I thought he meant. I think he, I think that's true. I, uh, I didn't know if it, cause I looked it up if, if it was a poetic term or something like that. And it is, it's like a thing that you might think about as a poem, which means I guess how effectively your message gets across, but something like that. <clears throat> um, he said, by functionally, I really just meant something like, be able to convey its basic information in addition to the poes, devicey poetic stuff. So there's both like just the basic ability to convey its information. Like we didn't catch what the third thing was. Uh, maybe that's kind of one of the things he would have made a little bit more obvious if you were writing it today, which you're not allowed to go back and do though, by the way. Um, and this is interesting. Did you know this about uh, the Paris Commune, though, Abe, that they made the decision to let the Bank of France continue to function? No, I didn't. Hmm. Um, apparently, apparently, it was a terrible mistake. Letting, letting any central bank exist is always a mistake. Do you think it was letting money continue to operate in the same way that it had letting money exist is all also always a mistake do you think money is a blood cult <laughs> that that, es that escalated quickly it's, all right the cult of mammon right it's uh um, yeah, I, I did not know that about the Paris Commune, that they, that they allowed the bank to continue existing. Um, but I, I think that's why we didn't catch, uh, I remember that podcast and I think we didn't understand what theory of speculation meant. 
-hmm. And we didn't understand that it was the title of some paper or some book that talks about um, financing speculation. And, and really it's what, what, what he's saying is that it became what we know as the stock market and everything and all the speculation that goes into it. So that's what the theory of speculation was. Um, yeah. The one, uh, Joshua Clover goes on to say that the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune is just around the corner. I actually don't know if it already happened yet. Oh, maybe we can look that up because this email's from a couple months. Oh no, it's just from earlier this month. Um, so the around the corner could have been the corner we just uh, went around. And then he said, though it also feels important for me to remind myself that communes, even at a civic scale, you already did a commune episode, no? Have a long and varied history that is not always so European. Morelos to Shanghai, and surely lots that I don't know about. I'm trying to write a book that is somewhat about communes, though, in the future, or as a revolutionary strategy, more than an end goal. Books are hard, though. It is stretching my brain. Best, Joshua. Mm -hmm. Got to give a shout-out to... Uh... Professor Clover for engaging with us. Thank you. Yeah, you know? so yeah, it's not fun. So great. Um, do you, do you yeah, think you remember that he came to talk uh, at Cal State LA? <laughs> I truly wonder. Maybe yes. Vaguely. Yes, I think so. Because he also attended the workshops. I mean, I mean, he attended like like you know, uh, he didn't just come for uh, his keynote. He actually attended the conference. Oh. I remember. Oh, that's cool. Because he was at my panel. Oh, yeah. Do you think that's like in line with his philosophy, kind of? Maybe. What do you dig about Joshua Clover's philosophy from his poem and these emails? Also, uh. can somebody just help me understand uh, what he means when he says it feels important for me to remind myself that communes have a long history, not always so European. Oh, I think it's just a critique of the work he's doing because he seems focused on like European communes, um, mm -hmm. which is, uh, which is fine. I think he needs to be conscious of the fact that a lot of scholarship is still Eurocentric. Right. Yeah, I think he's uh, expressing that right here. Yeah. Yeah, so we may think of the Paris Commune as the central commune event, but uh, we're, we'd be neglecting or we'd be simplifying things if we didn't look deeper into uh, non-European moments. I mean, even recent memory, right? The EZLN. Mm -hmm. Wait, what did, sorry, what was that, Nefren? I mean, I was just saying, like, in terms of, like, commune or commune-like events or, or organizations, the uh, Zapatistas in recent memory. Oh, I'll have to look more into that. Well, I've been thinking of, uh, you know, starting a commune, too, but we need a leader, you know? I thought, I, I thought that's the whole point, I get it. <laughs> 
and that the point was not to have a lead. <laughs> a, 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 a commune with a leader is just a cult. Oh, dang it! Back to back to the drawing board. Um, I have an idea for the song of this episode since we kind of uh, usually go out with a song that we choose. Um, but since this podcast was conceived in an elevator at Cal State LA, what if we choose "Love in an Elevator" by Aerosmith? For it. That doesn't have the word maudlin in it, though. Well, if you want a song that has crying in it by Aerosmith, it's Jamie's Crying. Or Crying. Or just Crying. I like Jamie's Crying better. It's a better song. Isn't that a Van Halen song? Oh, you're right. right. (laughs) What am I thinking, Jamie? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm confusing it with Jamie's Got a Gun. Yeah, what what was Jamie doing? She was doing everything and nothing. Jamie was doing everything back in those days. But um, how about, you know what, in honor of Van Halen, and I also like how Jamie's crying, so there's like a person crying. So like Jamie's crying is almost like a Magdalene figure in that song, maybe. Yeah, it worked. All right, there we go. Van Halen, on the needle. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Josh again, and I'm here again with Abe. Hey, leaders. And Efren. Been an honor. And Aaron. Peace in the Middle East. Rain in Spain. And we'll see you next time on Extreme Vocabulary.